This podcast may include adult content. Bound Up is an independent, non-profit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com slash donate. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories. What Happened in Miami by Justin Harkin and And the Levin Bar Stared Back at Me by Frida Love Smith. What Happened in Miami, written and read by Justin Harkin. Listening time, 4 minutes, 30 seconds. What Happened in Miami Dad took off when I turned 8. His idea. Mom begged, counseling, vacation, whatever. But divorce came anyhow and they went their separate ways. Dad to a new bachelorhood in California and Mom to the kinds of jobs that require uniform fees to come out of the first couple of checks. Life changed. Mom ditched the four-bedroom for a rented duplex near the airport. After a couple of years, Dad ditched California for a place in Grandpa's firm. Closer to us, he exercised his visitation rights, picked me up every other weekend in a slut-red two-seater Mustang. Dad remarried in 92. Rochelle, his bride, was 12 when I was born. She looked like Mom but younger, a little more petite, a little longer hair. I lived with them a few weeks between 8th grade and freshman year. It was fun. Rochelle liked hanging out, and she took me to record shops and the places she loved in high school. Drive-ins, dollar flicks, Indiana Dunes. Said she wanted to be close, not like what she had with the monster who married her mom. After I went home in the fall, she started calling me at school. Said Dad tried to kill her. Mentioned strangling, mentioned rape. She asked for money, something to help her till she got on her feet. Would pay me back on my birthday double, toss in a skateboard and maybe some vans. Later, Dad found Vicodin, Demerol, and Percocet in hidey holes all over their house. Little pills from everywhere, different doctors, different names. In the end, Rochelle damaged Dad worse than Dad damaged Mom. The man retreated to work, stayed single ten years. Devoted to the law, he grew his practice and started thinking public office. He met Sharon, his next wife, at some sort of party function, a fundraiser. Sharon's a city councilwoman and into that kind of thing. They fell in love shaking hands and kissing babies. The papers adored them together. The wedding, Dad's third, her second, was bigger than mine, something like 500 guests. I introduced myself during the dollar dance. Dad and I had a rough patch after college, so I didn't get a chance to meet her before. Easy picking her out in the crowd. She was the one in the dress. I never asked about their breakup. They lasted six years, divorced as friends. No kids, no property to speak of. Dad drew up the papers and had them blessed by one of Sharon's attorney friends. I know the guy, actually. He does real estate. Contracts. Sharon had him help me with the closing on my place. Darren, his name is. Precinct captain. Helps the party on evenings and weekends. Fourth wife I met at my grandfather's wake two years ago. Dad said there's someone I'd like you to meet, so I shook her hand and said hello. Said her name was Margie Schumann. I said something, I don't know. I was rude, curt, abrupt. I thought the woman was a clerk or something, maybe a donor, an important wife of an important friend. I remember thinking, is now the time for schmoozing? Anyway, Sharon was there, and I thought she and the old man were on the mend. Classy of her showing up is what I think now. I didn't go to Dad and Margie's wedding. No one did. 
Dad sat on the news for months, kept saying my wife, my wife, in phone calls, compelling me to ask. Yeah, we're married now, he said, spur of the moment. Felt like the right thing to do. They eloped over a weekend's judges' conference in Florida last fall, told me a team of drunken strangers performed the nuptials. The first officiant, a city judge from Fort Oche, Louisiana, was so hard to understand they asked an Arizona justice of the peace to redo the whole thing in the hallway outside their hotel room. It took five minutes. They don't even have to be lawyers to do that there, Dad explained. Arizona will give that job to anyone. Margaret Tucker, nay Schumann, is careful about the stepmother thing. I know you're too old for stepmom, she told me, so I'd like to be your friend. Yeah, okay, let's be friends, I said. You go first. We're Facebook friends now. I read her Facebook stuff. She updates mostly about grandkids, Farmville, things she likes to eat. She writes comments on the pictures of my children and tells me they're so cute. There's not much else to say. I can tell you she's a Democrat and a White Sox fan. She honeymooned recently in Nassau. Pictures like crazy. Profile says she married the greatest guy ever, and I think that's just fine. Justin Harkin lives with his wife and daughter in Chicago, Illinois. He is associate editor of Fiction at Work, and his stories have appeared in Word Riot, Thieves' Jargon, The Angler, and Analemma. And the lemon bar stared back at me. Written and read by Frida Love Smith. Listening time, 12 minutes, 30 seconds. And the lemon bar stared back at me. In retrospect, we might have asked a few more questions about the house on Evangeline Drive. There were hints. There were clues. Jake and I followed the agent around during the showing. She read from her clipboard and pointed out the ceiling fans, the garbage disposal, the picture window. It's a 1963 split level with the front door leading into a large open living room and you can either turn right into the kitchen and dining room or left up a small flight of stairs into a hallway and row of bedrooms. But when she gave us a chance to wander freely, we discovered small rooms extending off some of the bedrooms and branching hallways we only noticed the third or fourth time around. We asked the agent how many rooms exactly were in the house. She looked at her clipboard. Twelve, she said, or thirteen, I think. The rooms held an unlikely collection of housewares and furniture a silky pink fainting couch next to a massive granite coffee table, flouncy floor lamps in one room, modern chrome and leather chairs in the next. In the kitchen, an ancient heavy glass blender sat alongside one of those old orange juicers that nobody has anymore. There was rust around its rim. A pile of dolls filled one of the bedrooms. How can this be priced so low, said Jake? It's enormous. I know, said the agent. It's an amazing price, and it won't last. I just don't think the Robinsons realize the value of what they have here. She looked at us. I guess she already knew she'd made the sale. Maybe she knew before we did. For years, we'd been squeezed into a tiny townhouse in the center of Gladstone, right in between a row of university fraternity houses and the busy town square. Our son had nothing but a foyer for his room, and poor Jonah, eleven by then, hated this. We hung a sheet from the ceiling to make it more private. Like a secret hideout, I said. But he was miserable. 
The noise of town, too, was grinding us down. Students from the frat houses crossed over our lawn after late-night parties, dropping plastic beer cups and cigarette stubs. We'd been sucking it in for so long. We wanted to exhale deeply, to spread out into this spacious, quiet, wall-to-wall carpeted world. We pushed aside our embarrassment about living in the suburbs. We knew we wouldn't fit in. And still, it was our turn to stake a piece of the American dream. Giddy from sprawling space, we made an offer on the spot, and within one hour, the deal was settled. Jake pulled the orange U-Haul right up to the house, and we jumped out. His brother Tom was helping us move. Hey, said Tom, I think I know this house. Isn't this where they have that huge Bible meeting? Well, I said, laughing, not anymore. Only atheists and sinners here now. Tom looked at Jake, but I wasn't interested. I was already busy unlocking the front door and crossing the threshold. I ran in, anticipating the glory of clean, empty rooms, but was surprised to find lots of things left behind. The pink fainting couch was still there. The blender was gone, but the rusty orange juice maker sat on one of the kitchen shelves, and the shelves hadn't been wiped down. There were a few scattered dolls left in that one bedroom. I walked around and around, discovering more and more space. In fact, I discovered an entire suite with a full bathroom that I didn't remember from when we viewed the house. I was irritated about all the dolls and things, but there was a beautiful oak bunk bed in the suite, and I thought it would be a dream room for Jonah, especially when his cousin came to visit. They would have their own little boy world. We can make this work, I thought. And so we poured the contents of our life into the house, and the house swallowed them all up. There were too many rooms, some of them sat empty, with nothing but an odd left-behind floor lamp. I pushed the pink couch into Jonah's room just to fill it up. In our old townhouse, every square inch was utilized. Nothing was empty. Here, we could hear our voices echo. Look at this room. Did we notice this one before? After two days of unpacking, I decided it was time for a real room count. Okay, there were six bedrooms, three bathrooms, two sitting rooms, a family room, sewing room, laundry room, kitchen, dining room, pantry, and office. The next count, however, included a big side room for storage with a few dusty chairs piled up in the corner and a tiny bedroom with carpeting on the walls. I counted again, but I was in a hurry and couldn't find the little carpeted room anywhere. I gave up on counting. I enjoyed the chaos, to be honest, but I was worried about Jonah, who periodically disappeared. We found things and lost things. Jonah called to me on the second night, and I followed the sound of his voice into the family room. There he sat, in front of a square plaid record player and a milk crate of faded rock records, I was positive it hadn't been there before. These are records, right? He said, look at these, Mom. We flipped through. Cream. Bread. Why are these bands named after food? He said. I pulled out a Bob Dylan record and played him blowing in the wind. He listened. He didn't move. Mom, he said, what do you believe in? 
I don't know if I really can say that I believe in anything, I answered. But, he said, my teacher taught us that without belief, there can't be sentences. And without belief and sentences, there can't be truth. Are you positive that's what he said? What does that even mean? It's logic, said Jonah. I wasn't sure about this teacher. On the evening of our third day, we gathered near the front door, organizing ourselves to go to the mall for house paint and drapes. We were almost ready to go when the doorbell rang, followed by several loud, reckless knocks on the door. I looked at the peephole to see the driveway full of cars and cars pouring down Evangeline Drive and an army of about 16 people standing by our front door, smiling, and more people moving up the driveway, streaming out of all those cars. I gently pushed Jonah behind me, took Jake by the hand, and opened the door, standing squarely to face the crowd. Hey, said a chubby guy in a white cotton sweater, where's the Robinsons? We live here now, I said. They moved. The Robinsons moved. Oh, heck, said Chubby, I should have known. He turned to the petite, fortyish cheerleader type by his side, and she nodded. Just a sec, she said, and she dashed to and from a powder blue station wagon. She popped a warm orange casserole dish into my hands, breaking my handhold with Jake. Welcome to the neighborhood, she said, charging into our house, right in between Jake and me, creating an opening for the group of now about 50 people to enter. They clapped Jonah on the back. They were singing, some of them, onward Christian soldiers in light, jovial voices. What's this? I asked a slim woman in a fitted gray suit. She stopped and stepped towards us, allowing the flow of traffic to continue. There had to be at least a hundred of them now. They broke off into different directions. A little girl yelled, most of the dolls are gone. The gray suit woman said, our Bible group has been meeting here every Tuesday for years. I don't know how many years and years, no matter who lives here. She rejoined the stream. But wait, I said. Jake stood speechless. Jonah had little tears in the corners of his eyes. Wait, I said to nobody, to all of them, young, old, cheerful, determined. We were just going to the mall. We were literally just about to walk out the door. They kept coming. We're not Christian, said Jake, finally able to speak. A skinny teenage girl clucked at him. Sweet baby Jesus, that's what they all say. I ushered Jake and Jonah into the kitchen and put the casserole on the counter. I lifted the lid, pasta, cheese, and tuna. We were planning to eat Subway at the mall. This looked nicer. While I set the table, three women bustled around the kitchen, setting up a gigantic carafe for coffee, which they pulled out of a cupboard underneath the sink. A cupboard I'd not yet noticed. There were other things in there, a silver platter, a teapot. Is that yours, I said. They giggled. It's too old to be anybody's, said one of the women. It's just here said one of the others. During dinner, the house sang around us, feeling full and alive. There were two bedrooms of babies and a couple of older girls scooping babies up and putting them down. 
The little children had settled into Jonah's suite, where they clapped their hands rhythmically, chanting, Jesus loves me, yes I know, for the Bible tells me so. Teens sprawled around one of the sitting rooms, talking abstinence, checking each other out, wearing promise rings. Men in the office shouted doctrine, women in the family room argued politely about a charity drive, and constantly Christians ran into and out of our kitchen for coffee or juice or lemon bars. Jake devoured a heaped plateful of the tuna casserole, and then another, like he was starving. I admit the tuna casserole was good. It was the way my grandmother used to make it with crumbled potato chips on top. There were mountains of lemon bars, and so we helped ourselves, and as we did so, the clucking girl reappeared, clucking even louder. I thought y'all wasn't Christian. She winked at Jonah. These are Christian lemon bars. The lemon bars were exquisite. I could make a thousand batches of lemon bars and never achieve that level of perfection. Tangy, creamy, gelled lemon topping on a flaky shortbread crust. Not too sweet, not too tart. A study in contrast, balance, and mouthfeel. Jonah ate his slowly and in wonder. Mom, he said, do you believe in lemon bars? We smiled at each other. Jake's mouth was too full to say anything. You'd think he'd never eaten in his life. When nobody was looking, I wrapped a few lemon bars in foil and put them in the fridge. After a couple of hours, a whirling cloud of girls and women swooped through the split level, tidying and clearing. Car doors slammed over echoing calls of, see you next week, and then they were gone. Late, late that night, the deep suburban quiet woke me up. What were the things I was looking for in a house? Maybe it was peace. Maybe it was space. Maybe it was some other thing. I felt my way to the kitchen, to the refrigerator door handle, pulled it open, and there was light, and I unwrapped the cold lemon bars. I held one in my hand, staring into it. Frida Love Smith is a drummer, writer, and teacher in Chicago. Her work has appeared in Leaf Press, The Yellow Room Magazine, Riptide Journal, and Critical Survey. Listener-supported Bound Off is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund and the President's Fund of the Greater Cedar Rapids Community Foundation. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off, copyright Bound Off and the respective authors, all rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories. <laughs>